You're listening to episode one of the Architecture and Anthropocene podcast brought to you by Triennale Milano, Italy's foremost institution for design and contemporary culture with me, David Pleasant. Each episode, we'll be bringing you some of the thoughts and insights of architects, designers, urbanists, and a sound artist that have all passed through the Triennale's doors here in Milan. What is the purpose of a cultural institution? How does it exist or coexist within a political or social context? And how do these institutions deal with the urgency of climate change? Big questions to grapple with, and no more qualified two people can help us answer these than Paola Antonelli and Glenn D. Lowry. Paola is Senior Curator at MoMA's Department of Architecture and Design and Curator of the 22nd Triennale this year entitled Broken Nature. An early adopter of digital technology in the exhibitions she staged at MoMA, Paola is now seen as one of the most influential voices in the sector of cultural curation. Glenn D. Lowry is the David Rockefeller Director of MoMA and has gained an almost unrivalled reputation for successful cultural management. Paola and Glenn both spoke at Triennale Milano and discussed whether cultural institutions are the R&D of today's society. I caught up with both of them and found out why curators should not rest on their laurels. Thank you for joining us, Paola. Thank you. First of all, please tell us about the theme of the Triennale this year, which you curated. The theme is Broken Nature. It also has a subtitle, which is Design Takes On Human Survival. And, you know, the subtitle was kind of necessary because you need to put design somewhere so people know what you're talking about. But on the other hand, I was always more content with the title by itself until recently, and I'll get to that. So the initial prompt for this title is the fact that, as we all know, we have several threads that connect us to nature. And in the past few centuries, depending on when you think the Anthropocene started, whether it's with the invention of agriculture or with the Industrial Revolution or, or afterwards, in the past few or many years, we have severed some of these ties. And uh, some of them are irreparably broken. Others can be fixed a little bit. Others can be strengthened almost to their initial state. So the exhibition was about that, about trying to go from broken to a new relationship. Because, you know, when something's broken, you cannot go back, but you can go forward. And that's, that was the whole prompt. I can go in much more detail, but later on. Well, you've, you've, you've prompted me to my next question. So that's the hypothesis. Nature is broken. How can a cultural institution such as the Triennale fix or help to fix that? One cultural institution alone cannot do much, but hundreds of cultural institutions, thousands of artists, millions of students might get to the politicians and to the legislators. So it always is about bottom and top. And whether you consider people the bottom or the top, you know, that's an argument that we might discuss. But right now, let's go back to the old traditional hierarchies. Let's say that politicians are at the top. Uh, For the sake of argument, let me add. And let's talk about people. I believe much more in people than in 
governments and politicians usually. So even if they're well-intentioned, sometimes they need to act not necessarily in our interest. But if the people uh, really surge, uh, prompted by cultural institutions and prompted by other cultural actors, then things can happen. And I'm, I'm very glad to say that the Triennale is not the only exhibition dealing with this subject. There are many in different ways. You know, the Cooper Hewitt in New York just opened an exhibition called Nature. And uh, there's been an exhibition in Lisbon last year that was called Ecovisionaries that's now going to the National Gallery in London. So, and I could go on for a long time. I actually, I would like to do a little bit of a shout out to our website, which is besides the Triennale one, it's brokennature.org. We also have a list of some of the other exhibitions and events that are about this theme. So altogether, we can really make a difference by stimulating people's own critical tools, because that's our job. It's not to tell people what's good and what's bad, but rather stimulating them so that they can make their own decisions. You kind of went into politics there a little bit. And uh, yesterday, one interesting, amongst many very fascinating topics that, that, that were uh, raised, was um, you, you pointed out the very different kind of approach to politics and cultural institutions that you have become familiar with in New York at, at MoMA and how that kind of contrasts maybe how things are done here in Europe. I'm really interested in that, in that difference. What, what do you point out the, the, the kind of the main differences are? Well, the big, big difference is where the funding comes from. Right. Um, I remember going to the United States. I've been working at MoMA for 25 years. And when I got there, I didn't really know what a trustee was. I couldn't really understand what these really smart people were doing. I couldn't understand if I was working for them or if they were working for me. So it was really very interesting. There is a level of investment that is much higher in the United States just because it's a private institution and you have to make ends meet and you have to keep the lights on. That makes for a clearer path and also I like the honesty of knowing also as a curator that when you present an exhibition and you get a budget you have to stay within budget. There's no prima donna. I mean there are some divas still but Really, it's, um, it's about being in it all together. Um, what are the downsides? Well, the downsides is that I do believe that governments should be involved in culture and should support culture. So, all right, we have made lemonade out of lemons and all the institutions or almost all the institutions in the U.S. are private. But you know what? It would be much better if they were not completely private, right? Mm -hmm. So some sort of um, top-down... Yeah, I mean, somebody can create the business model. Now, Italy or Europe, but I, I can speak mostly about Italy, government-funded, there is a certain attitude of, this is not my problem, right? Uh, of course, there are some that are accountable, but altogether, I noticed that Italy has the most amazing craftsmanship and dedication and things happen in four days that in the U.S. happen in three weeks and they happen perfectly, right? So when it comes to making, no problem. When it comes to taking decisions, to managing, to creating policies, that's much more complicated and it's a type of politics that I'm not familiar with. There's a lot of politics also in American institutions but it's of a different kind. I don't think I would survive in Italy three days. <laughs> mm -mm. Okay, that's great insight there. Um, could 
we go back to the talk yesterday and, and, and you sort of uh, proposed the argument that really cultural institutions act as the R&D, the research and development of society as, as a whole. Can you expand on that? What, why? Well, I'll go back to 2008, but not for long. So the financial crisis. For my whole life, I've had a chip on my shoulders after also doing two years of Bocconi. And I've wondered why everybody's ready to throw a lifesaver to the uh, financial sector and to the industrial sector, no matter what, as if they were the most important for the destinies of society. And why instead the cultural sector is considered so superfluous and so you know, easy to, so disposable. In 2008, I was hoping that people would see the light. When the, the big financial crisis happened, I hoped they would really understand that if they wanted the kind of slow, dependable progress that society sometimes needs, they should look to culture. So I proposed to Glenn Lowry, to MoMA's director, to start an R&D department that would explore all this and also propose to the citizens how museums could help. And we couldn't really do it at that time right away because we were all taking pay cuts not to fire people. So we couldn't start a new, and we didn't fire anybody. We couldn't start a new department, but we waited two years and then it started. And what this department does is it tries to prove citizens that museums are not only places where you go and look at art on walls, but they are useful tools to deal with life. We pick really big topics. So we did a salon on death. We did a salon on uh, uh, aging. Uh, we did one on white male. And the last one was on work. It was called Work Spheres. We did one on culture and metrics, like, you know, how culture doesn't have the metrics to prove its necessity to society. And I believe that uh, that's part of what we should do in museums. Also, to show that museums are about life, not just about contemplation and detachment from life. I liked um, the notion that a museum is a laboratory as mm -hmm. well. And as a curator, I imagine that, that requires a huge amount of, of uh, courage and, and imagination, more than maybe budgets and, and, and those kind of constraints. You, you really have to think outside of the box. And is that something you, say you well, would say you're quite good at? I, I would say I, so. From <laughs> I think I am. But, you know, I have tremendous admiration for people that do budgets. And actually, our CFO is one of my favorite people in the museum, so it, in terms also of vision. And uh, courage comes in many different you know, formats and forms. And also, there are many different types of curators. This said, there are curators that conserve objects. There are curators that do monographic shows. There are curators that are about the past, historical art. I happen to be about contemporary design, so it's kind of easy for me to take leaps because it's part of my job. You were really quite a pioneer in terms of the use of digital technology and, and the web in one of your early earliest uh, oh, the first shows. one yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so I mean that you did that really before any anyone else uh, I don't think it took courage I wanted it I've learned to do what I want one way or the other perhaps by learning some skills that I didn't have before like HTML or and you coded that yourself you yeah said. <laughs> I coded it myself because um, nobody really not knew it was 95 and nobody really knew what a website was so communications looked at me publications was perplexed they gave me a budget of 310 dollars and um when there was this is to, to to digitize yeah they told me yeah so they didn't know what it was so they said okay want to do something 310 <laughs> and so i took out to dinner several times uh, a phd um artist in digital artist adrian wurzel and she taught me to to code 
And so that's how it all happened. Wonderful. But it was not courage or anything. I just wanted it. Well, that's very modest, very kind of entrepreneurial <laughs> outlook, I think. Well, um, Paola Antonelli, I have to thank you very much. That was fascinating. Thank you. I'm Glenn Lowry, director of the Museum of Modern Art, and I'm here in Milan because of Broken Nature and also to talk about our new museum, which will open in October. So we have been hard at work on both an extension to the Museum of Modern Art, adding about 30% more gallery space, and a renovation to our existing buildings to make them more enjoyable for our visitors to navigate and move through. So for the last five years, we've been really focused on how to grow the institution's uh, galleries to meet and accommodate new forms of art like performance, but also how to rethink the interior of the museum to make it more intuitive so that when people come and visit us, they have an easier sense of uh, navigation, but even more importantly, they feel more welcome and at ease. If we throw back to the, the talk that, that you just uh, spoke at, um, there were a lot of big issues, uh, nominally nature, given the, the theme of the Triennale this year, and politics, very much intertwined. If we could start with climate change and nature, how do you feel a cultural institution such as your own can begin to grapple with that? I think there are a number of different ways that we as a cultural institution can engage questions of climate change, ecology, sustainability. The most powerful way, of course, is through the exhibitions and public programs we do that can illuminate some of the key questions. Uh, we can also do this by acquiring works of art that help on a longer term basis explain to people uh, or engage people with critical issues around sustainability and climate change. And of course, ultimately, we have to live it. If we believe that these are real issues, we have to find ways of being more energy efficient and more conscientious of the footprint. And I don't just mean the physical footprint, I mean even the metaphorical footprint we occupy. We're in a time when a large number of people, in fact an increasingly large number of people, want their cultural institutions to be socially responsible and so we have to learn how to be even more responsible than I think we already are. It was quite interesting on that theme, you're devil's advocate somewhat, uh, sitting next to a, an architect, Stefano Boeri, in, in a, a predominantly architectural institution at an architecture week next to a curator, your, your colleague who, who deals with architecture, you, you proposed uh, that maybe we don't really need to be building anything anymore. Or maybe the future will, the children of tomorrow will be more focused on reusing buildings and less focused on, on brand new architecture and, and, and the waste that that implies. Well, first of all, I want to be very clear. I'm in a kind of contradictory position having work now twice at the Museum of Modern Art on expansion. So we have to take it with a large grain of salt. But the question was, what does the future hold for museums in terms of buildings and architecture? And I think we're at a moment when a new generation of curators and activists 
and art historians and artists uh, and a new generation of visitors will want a different set of values from their cultural institutions and where my generation believe that we needed to constantly look at how to grow the institution to accommodate new forms of art in ever-increasing public. I think there's a generation that now asks, is that really a viable project? Does that not put into question the use of resources, financial, energy, human capital? Are there not better ways than simply developing more space? And I am utterly empathetic to that. And so my thought was that perhaps the future will be about repurposing what already exists, that the drive to, to look at making things bigger, to accommodate more art and more people, more ideas, may be offset by a desire to be more economically and ecologically sustainable. And so those are trade-offs that we have to arrive at through a kind of collective process. That was Glenn D. Lowry, the David Rockefeller director of MoMA and New York. And before that was Paola Antonelli, who is MoMA's senior curator in the Department of Design and Architecture and curator of the 22nd Triennale here in Milan, this year entitled Broken Nature. The Architecture and Anthropocene podcast is brought to you by Triennale Milano. Make sure to tune in to our next episode where I'll be speaking to Isle Weisman of Forensic Architecture in London. You can download this and every episode of Architecture and Anthropocene by going to triennale.org. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>